Hello and welcome to another episode of Political Agenda with me, PJ Thumb. Uh, today we have with us uh, someone who works on sexual violence and mental health, Alicia Khan. And this is going to be a really exciting episode, especially in light of uh, all the recent news coming out of Singapore. But before we get into that, um, this podcast is brought to you by New Narrative. And uh, New Narrative is a member-supported uh, movement for democracy in Southeast Asia, and we need your help to continue to put out work like this. So if you like what we do, please do join us as a member at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. I am wearing a blue and white batik shirt. I'm sitting in um, sort of an office-like background, and my pronouns are he, him. Okay, and now Subash. So welcome back to Political Agenda and today we have Alicia Khan but before we get back to her as always my friend my co-host Sean Francis Han how are you today Sean I am doing great very um very, very fascinated to be doing this over Zoom. That's the first time that we've done this. So very interesting new format for the show. But before we get into all the interesting stuff that comes with the show, uh, hi, my name is Sean Francis. My pronouns are he, him. I'm sitting in front of a background of, well, that's my wardrobe. And I'm wearing a blue shirt and, well, let's just say jeans. All right. So Alicia Khan, tell us more about yourself. Who are you? What are you wearing? And what are your pronouns? Hello, um, my pronouns are she, her. And I'm sitting in my bedroom on a brown chair. I've got some plants and candles behind me. Um, my work is really centered around sexual violence and mental health in the Singapore landscape. And I do a lot of independent research as well. All right. So, I mean, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background growing up, your lived experience. How did you get into activism or at least the work that you're doing right now? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I exist as a Pakistani Iranian woman. I exist as someone with neurodivergence, someone with mental illnesses, someone with trauma. There's a lot of marginalization to my existence and in being a brown body in this country. And so I think it really just started off with me sharing my own experiences naturally. And then as I developed um, my own comprehension of, you know, the psychoanalytical like perspective and my research and, you know, just being more involved in policy, I think my work kind of grew from there. Yeah. All right. So um, I, I guess I just guess I, to clarify, yeah. sorry, because it's not obvious since we're on Zoom, when you say this country, all right, you mean Singapore, yes, right? Yes. You grew up in Singapore, you're in Singapore right now, you work in Singapore. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And I am Singaporean, okay. just to be clear. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is something a lot of people are confused about. Yeah. So I guess I'm, I'm, I, you know, this is a question that I've asked a lot on the show, right? But, but what exactly made you want to take that lived experience and the work that you're doing and direct that towards the benefit of, of others and society, right? I mm -hmm. think, you know, uh, there, are, there are brown people, I think there are marginalized people out there who, um, you know, don't feel that compulsion or don't necessarily come to or come into activism. So what exactly was it that made you feel like this is something that I have to do? Mm -hmm. mm. So I feel like like when you exist as a brown person, it's definitely a personal decision whether you want to engage or not because it's a lot of expended energy. Mm. For me, it never felt like a choice because 
I saw my own struggles, even just with mental health, like when you experience depression or mental health and you understand the severity that you can experience, you never want others to go through the same thing. So I think I'm just actually very protective of um, people who are marginalized or vulnerable because I've not just seen their experiences, but I've seen the perspective of how they're kept where they are, if that makes sense. So yeah, it never felt like a choice really. Okay. I mean, so on that note, right, um, the, the, a lot of the work that you do, or at least the, the, the work that got us um, into contact with you is through mm-hmm. the page, the Instagram page, self underscore ally, right? Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit more about that. What exactly is self underscore ally? Um, and how did it get started? Why did you want to yeah. start this Instagram page? So I actually started a version of this when I was 14 and I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And at that age, it was a very different account, but it really was me going, oh, wow, like I've had this horrible experience. I never want others to go through that without resources, because at 14, the landscape of mental health was completely different. We did not have all these therapists giving you like really good information and like condensing research for you. There was just nothing. And Instagram was just like Justin Bieber and, and music and that was it. And so for me, it very much was like, I remember Googling things like, why are my ears burning in class? Which is an anxiety thing. When I get anxious about not knowing something, my ears burn like they're on fire. Um, and at that time, there was no information because no one was putting it out there. The internet was a different place. And so I was like, okay, there's a lot of stuff I've learned. I would like to just make that easier for other people because of how hard it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so can you talk a bit more about this experience? Because I think um, for many Singaporeans or many people in our audience, we uh, don't really know what it's like to actually have m- mental health issues and then go through the f- a formal treatment program for that. Um, mm-hmm. So. If I understand correctly, you actually were trying to get it treated, but you didn't have that information and you were turning to Google to compensate? Yeah. Or am I misunderstanding? Okay. So what, what was the formal treatment program like and why was that lacking? So I went to the Child Guidance Clinic, which is under IMH, and I started at 14. I think I went through like six different therapists and I just found it like for myself, not helpful at all because it was very clinical. It didn't really feel personable and empathetic. And a lot of the information I was getting, I could read in the DSM directly. In fact, there were sessions where I would go in and be like, I literally know you're gonna go and do this today because it's in the book. And so it was a bit too textbook for me and finding treatment that really worked for me required me looking at private care and then paying a lot more basically, yeah. Sorry, DSM? Sorry, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is the book which has all the information on the different disorders and treatments and yeah. Oh, right, right. Okay, that's very Singaporean. You just study according to the textbook. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there, there are some therapists who are really good here and I've heard of that. But in my experience, I was unfortunate and saw many therapists who were just not doing that. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, coming back into self ally, right? Like... What exactly is the goal with self-ally, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, what does it offer and what do you hope to achieve uh, with the page? 
So self ally. First of all, my name is Alicia, but my nickname is Ali. So that was a bit of a you know. But oh, okay. but <laughs> but ally basically is to advocate. And one thing I really learned in my psych degree and just in my own work is, um, actually, in one of my classes, a lecturer said, "A good therapist does not intend to see a client indefinitely." Because you want to get to the point where they have the skills and the tools to be a helper to themselves as well, and I think in Singapore, what I saw was me wanting to actively go and help other people and be like, oh, like if this is happening to you, I'll go speak up and I'll do this. And I think I realized that there are too many areas of marginalization, and what I need to really be doing is trying to give people as much tools and resources as possible. I like in my workshop, I called it a tool belt. I think we all need a little tool belt of knowing our rights, knowing how to like you know access our rights and and do that, and also understanding the equity we deserve. And so my page is really about allowing others the the right and the skill to self advocate, so that they don't always need others to do that for them. Because that would be you know ideal. But I think even in my own life, there've been so many times that I've had no one around me, and I'm the one person in the room, and I have to just do it for myself. Yeah. Can you can you give us a, uh, an example? Like, um, mm -hmm. what rights um, are people with mental health issues lacking, or that uh, you know? How does the the system make it difficult for you as someone who mm -hmm. has mental health issues that you need to then uh, stand up and protect yourself against? So. I think systemically we are really lacking in understanding the nuance necessary because every disorder is different, every need is different. And so when I was in university, for example, I had a very extreme trigger, and there were a lot of times I couldn't go to my classes. And I got my therapist to write a letter, which was a general letter that says she has an anxiety disorder. There will be times she might have panic attacks. She may not be able to attend lectures. Please excuse her. And I was asking them, like, could we kind of negotiate that maybe two two classes a semester? You don't count me as lacking attendance because of my disorder. And the thing is, like, mental illness is physical illness. Most of my symptoms are actually physical, but because of this lack of comprehension, they really saw it as well. You're just getting yourself in like a you know like a state, and they didn't really understand it. And so what they said was. Anytime I had to miss a class, I had to attend a therapy session, two hundred thirty-five dollars, and then get another letter written, one hundred dollars. And so I was like, so I have to pay three hundred and thirty-five dollars for every missed class just so you don't mess up my attendance. And it really came from a place of like I don't think they fully believed me, you know, because their comprehension was just lacking. And so when I say knowing our rights, I mean the system is not taught. And the system continues and treats people based on a lack of education, and then we're sitting there like having like a fifty percent attendance rate, as if we're actually trying to like skip class when in reality we're trying extra hard to be present. So, mm. I think that's a good example. Yeah. Mm. Right. And to clarify, like, is this sort of treatment legal in Singapore in the sense uh, that can the university actually say that to you, like? force you to go, you know, ignore a letter from an already licensed therapist, uh, psychologist, and say, no, you have to do these extra things, pay this extra money, or is it covered under uh, any sort of anti-discrimination act that, you know, and you could have responded, uh, no, that's discrimination under the law and you can't do that. What, what is the legal situation? So from my understanding, and I'm not a lawyer, but from my, you know, personal reading, 
um, there are very, very few protective measures and protective laws, which is why advocating is necessary because even for, if you look at like mental health insurance, they only count a few. And my question is, how are you making that decision? So I think, I think there's, I think it's a top bottom approach, right? Like top down approach. Like if people making the decision sitting in those policy offices don't understand something, why would they write it in? Yeah. So, I mean, on that note of political rights and mental health, right? Um, I've kind of noticed that self-ally is interesting in that it has a kind of focus or a slant on race and sexual violence. So um, why, why did you choose to focus on these issues and their intersections with uh, mental health? I think because I've seen the most damage in those areas in my personal life. And okay. I think that for me, I mean, I, I have this issue where I do see things very black and white. I'm like, if this is wrong, fix it, you know? And so, and a lot of my work, and I've had conversations with policymakers about these things. Like, I actually emailed Sean Magam, and I, I detailed what I was upset about regarding sexual violence. And I said, I want to talk to you. Unfortunately, he didn't want to talk to me directly, but I spoke to a director of policy at MHA who actually heard me out. And I think they took one of my suggestions to train first contact officers. And I was suggesting that because our comprehension of victim care and what people need is lacking because we're not really listening to them. And we're also not putting money to research what they need, whether qualitative or quantitative. That's like my belief. Like there's just not enough work in this. And so I had to explain, I said, when someone's reporting a rape, for example, or, or sexual violence, um, the first person they see is not someone who's trained. They're going to their local police station and that person might have no comprehension of being trauma-informed. And so I think it's really just like I've seen the lack of comprehension and so I'm so like, I would, dedicated or desperate, I don't know, <laughs> to make it more understood, yeah. Okay, it's on that note, right? Um, could you share with us, like, give us an overview of what the intersection of race and mental health looks like, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and what are some of the things that we miss out in this area? Like, how exactly does race interface with mental health issues? Mm -hmm. I think, yes, it's, it's exactly that, like a question of intersectionality. Like, you cannot support queer folk if you don't support brown queer folk, for example. Mm -hmm. like. I think there's this issue where we see things as individual fights, whereas if you're not fighting for everyone, you're not fighting for anything at all, actually. And so in this sense, like a white woman going to therapy has very different needs than a black or brown woman going to therapy. When I'm going to therapy, I'm going in with my cultural background, with my you know racial trauma. And if I'm seeing someone who, for example, is Chinese or white, they need to do the work to be culturally conscious to provide me what I need. And so I think like it's really a question of doing the work to understand equity. And when you don't do that, or even if it's like, a, you know, if, if you have disabilities, like I have different disabilities, like I think the issue is if we don't count it in the work, then we're not treating it. And then we're not treating the person as a whole. Um, maybe if I could press you a little bit more on that, right? Okay. Um, yeah. So... Uh, I think you've given us a very interesting perspective here about how race interfaces and intersects with mental health um, when it comes to therapists, right? I mean, if a therapist is not going to be culturally conscious, then you're going to come into therapy and then get traumatized all over again because mm -hmm. you have this person who's just insensitive and they just, you know, they just don't know better. But 
what about outside of mental health institutions, right? Like, what is it like as, uh, I guess, a brown person, a person with disability, a person with uh, neuro, uh, neurodivergence, right? How does that neurodivergence interact with race, uh, especially in a place like Singapore? I mean, how does race kind of interact with mental health, right? I mean, there's, we, we know, okay, um, there's racism, there's microaggression, you have to deal with that on a daily basis. But what are some things that maybe we miss out about being a brown person and then navigating reality in Singapore and then having to kind of manage and maintain your own mental health? How does the system kind of make mental health worse for brown people? Well, the system doesn't have time for it, right? Because we're treated like everyone else. And so there's no time at the end of the workday to take an hour off because someone made a comment and now you need a moment to de-stress. Um, I think I think this is a good time to talk about in-group bias, which is like also called in-group favoritism. And it's this psychological theory where when when you are in a certain group, whether it's, it could be any group, like your gender, race, sexuality, whatever it is, you are naturally disposed to prefer your group and see them as more human and more valuable. So their feelings are also seen as more valuable. And they've done studies on literal children to, to test this and every single time they have seen, people will always give better treatment to who they consider in their group. Mm-hmm. And so we're living in a country where there's a huge majority I consider this a country where most things are catered to their needs first as the baseline and our needs after. And we are experiencing that reality and then at the same time being told things are not that bad. And so I feel personally really gaslit by the whole system because I'm experiencing things every single day and then they're being called casual. I don't know where this term came from. It's something I have so much issue with. I just hate the term casual racism. Because when I'm out there and something's happening, it doesn't. It there's nothing casual about it. And I think there's a question as well, like from the trauma informed approach, where we think you can have the best intentions and be saying something, but if your impact is harmful, your impact is harmful. And if we're telling you the impact is harmful, and you're going, oh, but it's not that bad, you're not really trying to make things better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this this whole in group bias um, sort of paradigm is really interesting but how do is there do we just have to live with it and adapt it uh, how do we deal with it on a broader societal uh, you know context like is part of the solution trying to over time decrease differences and expand the group is it part of it to maybe finally dice things more so our groups get smaller, you know? And of course, like, people have multiple groups, right? Depending on your context, you identify yourself as, you know, uh, Chinese. But then if you're outside Singapore, you might say you're Singaporean. And if you're outside Asia, you might say you're Southeast Asian. Or you mm-hmm. might also identify as a, a religious group or whatever. Um, but how, so how do you use this parrot? How do we make things this use this understanding to make things better? And I guess there's there's sort of two levels to that. One is at a societal posi- you know policy level, but also as an individual, how do I use this information to help uh, better address the inequalities and injustices I see around me? So. 
if if I get this quote wrong, I'm sorry, but I remember Lee Kuan Yew saying something like, "If if we were seventy five percent Indians, this would not have worked, or, you know, it would have been better if we were all Chinese, but unfortunately, um, and things like that." And then also being confused or pointing out that hey, like all the minorities are sticking to each other, they're not assimilating. All the Muslims are in their own group, and I think um, I think they have split us up. And then are confused about why we're keeping to ourselves. I think the point is that that's where our safety is, right? Like we are only safe with each other, and you've done that. So when we talk about in-group bias, right? Like in-group bias has literally been shown on the neural level. On a neural level, your processing is different when you're engaging with your own majority and the minorities. So it's like by no means something that would be easy to like you know rid yourself off or anything like that. Um, even though there needs to be work there, but I think the issue is that our comprehension of our groups is is so binary, um, like and, and I just feel like that it's all just along it's all just aligned with like what they want. It's like you know when we want you to be Singaporean, you're Singaporean, but when we want you to be minority, you're a minority, and it's like they're just picking and choosing when we're what, um, and at the the bottom of everything is just the fact that that you know I believe there is supremacy in our country. Like there is a supremacy because everything is Chinese centric, um, and the only way to kind of like compensate for that is to actually have respect among the groups, so that we are not just our owning groups, but we're our owning groups that are respected, but also as a nation are a group that respects each other. And that's not like that, that doesn't exist to me. So. I don't really have a solution for that, but I think like that's really where the problem is. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right because this, this, there's also this very much this hypocrisy in the how the PAP government has approached uh, not just society but a lot of policies. In that, when it suits them, they say, "Oh, these are in- essential, inherent differences that we can't do anything about." And then on the other hand, when they want to change things, they say, oh, you know, we have these policies that will change how people behave and we're imposing this so that people don't succumb to their worst natures. You know, just as they, there are times where they will, when things go well, they say this is because of PAP and when things go poorly, they say, oh, this is society's fault, the PAP can do nothing about it. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's all this hypocrisy and contradiction inherent in their, in their policies. Okay, so, yeah. so I mean, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, again, so I'm really bad with names, and I also have this thing where I don't like to really know a lot of the people in certain parties because I feel like it would be overwhelming for me. But I think this guy, Heng Sui Kiet, he was saying, like, oh, that he realized some of the older generation are not ready for a non-Chinese PM, if I'm correct. And yeah. and what what shook me was, like, I think they thought that we were saying, oh, like, he's saying that. We understood that he himself wasn't saying it. The issue is, how do you hear that an entire group of people would not be comfortable with a minority being PM and not go, oh, my God, like, oh, what do we do Mm. about this? Like, that's awful. The fact that he was so used to it, that he just said it (laughs) and then later was like, oh, oops. I mean, it's just in the nature, like they're just used to them being the normal baseline standard of like human here, and we're just like, kind of outside of that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, as a historian, that also staggered me because it was the you know older generation who elected David Marshall, 
it was a majority Chinese constituency which elected mm -hmm. J.B. Jayaratnam. I mean, you know, historically there is no evidence that uh, people would uh, are not ready for a non-Chinese prime minister. And of course, surveys have regularly showed Taman is, a, you know, everyone's preferred uh, next prime minister rather than any of these generic Chinese male civil service generals that the PAP are putting up. So it's not even based on fact. It's just they have, it feels like they have a certain view of the world and because of their power, they can shape the world to that view mm -hmm. rather than having their view conform to how the world actually is. And how do we, as people outside of that small circle, deal with it, right? When they have yeah. so much power to literally shape our lives, how do we deal with it? That's a really good point. Like, I think that wealth and power is something we're not thinking enough about. Because, like, recently, like, again, I hope I'm right, but Imran Khan kind of, like, stood with China, which is very strange. Like, Pakistan is, like, a very much a Muslim country. Like, I thought that he would actually care that there's a genocide. Um, but I was having a conversation with, like, one of my Pakistani cousins, and we were really thinking about how when you have wealth and you have power, even if you're in a certain group, you're not anymore because you actually exist out of that treatment and unfortunately a lot of men in power who you know let's say in Singapore Indian men or in other countries like you know um, other minority men we almost get tricked into thinking that well don't you understand but they don't because they're literally so rich they don't have to yeah, yeah. and I think this comes back to a, a bigger problem with the world around us in that we suffer all this racism but somehow we and this comes back maybe to your in-group bias we somehow have more solidarity uh, with the people who are exploiting us because they're the same group mm -hmm. but it's 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 so in clear and increasingly clear that really it's there's the rich wealthy powerful elite who are exploiting the rest of us it's capitalism and yet somehow they're able to encourage racism, nationalism, so that we ignore the actual main force of exploitation that is destroying us, right? And this comes back to a lot of things you said earlier about um, mental health issues caused by capitalism. We ignore that and instead we look at race and we look at nation and we draw lines that way mm -hmm. um, and, and ignore the, 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 the actual major force that is destroying their lives. You know, I think the socialists in the 50s and 60s were way more clear-eyed about this because they recognized capitalism as a very, very powerful, destructive force that could be harnessed and unleashed to reshape society as necessary, but was not necessarily an inherent good. But because of the Cold War, we've somehow associated capitalism as having this certain moral underpinning, inherently good, creating shareholder value is the best thing for society, which is all crazy, right? It's just capitalism is just a force that we harness. And really, our goal, to come back to some of these things we talked about, is overcoming um, many of, of the flaws of our inherent nature to build societies which you know, treat everyone with dignity and respect and take care of, of all of us. Yeah. I mean, I think any system that doesn't balance for equity is not a good system. And unfortunately, like, people often forget to, to understand, like, how capitalism will always affect, like, a person of privilege differently than, uh, like, a racial minority or something like that. 
Okay. Well, speaking of making things better, um, Self-Ally also has a website, and the website is full of really interesting resources. So I was kind of looking mm -hmm. through some of them, and you have um, one that I particularly liked, which is um, a resource for life in the pandemic, right? And then you have a booklet for abuse uh, in Singapore, uh, and then also an embodied healing self-care workshop, right? So mm -hmm. I, I kind of want to go into those a little bit, but can you give us a bit of a TLDR, a little bit of a sampler what exactly goes into the resources, uh, specifically the you know for life in the pandemic and abuse in SG? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, what goes into that? Yeah. So during the pandemic and also also since the Me Too movement, Aware has got a lot more you know calls in, and there have been a lot more cases that have like been more open and been reporting and stuff like that. And so I really saw the pandemic as a situation where I knew abuse rates were going to go up and. I, I created that list almost in preparation and I, I, me and some of my followers emailed them to different ministers and things like that. One of them contacted me, which was Pritam Singh, and actually shared it in his jurisdiction, which I thought was great because my main thing was I want this to be under the blocks, I want this to be around, and the resources were really like, who do you call? And also not everyone has the privilege to leave their situation, so it's also like resources of like preparing a safety plan, knowing what to do, keeping yourself like mentally sound, um, affordable treatments, so, like AWARE has really good subsidized like counseling for women. Um, and so it was really just resources to support people through the pandemic. Also with like queer folk, like being in, in a space that might be queer phobic is a whole thing as well. So it was just me trying to find resources for anything that would be aggravated during the pandemic. Okay, what's inside the booklet for abuse in SG? So firstly, an explanation of what abuse looks like, because I think, I think for anyone, like we're not really taught what, no one wants to teach a kid what abuse is, right? And so things like financial abuse and, you know, emotional, psychological abuse, those are things that we almost, it's, it's very normalized. I mean, abuse in general is normalized. So it's an explanation of what abuse looks like, so you can identify it, but also um, it gives resources to friends on how do you respond. Like if you notice something, how do you approach it? Because I think it's important to give trauma survivors and victims the autonomy while also trying to support them. So that was kind of the intention. All right. Uh, well, then now lastly coming to this, the, in the really interesting one for me was the Embodied Healing Self-Care Workshop. So what, what is that? What's a, what exactly is that? Yeah. I am like so happy about this because I didn't know how it would go and mm -hmm. I was so happy with the result. But I basically took like my years of, of you know, psychological research and my own like healing journey. Um, embodied is really about the literal body and mm -hmm. in trauma treatment or trauma care and, you know, even in your personal recovery, connecting safely back with your body is a really important part of healing. Um, and of course, like this, this workshop was not at all a substitute for therapy. I saw it more as like a, a space for self-care and connection and, and exchange. And it really was that we did a lot of like journaling. I, I wrote out like guided meditation scripts that were focused on inner child work. And so it was like a little playground for me to just like use all the tools I've been enjoying and put it together and, and kind of offer it, which I've been waiting to do. And I think I just got really lucky. The women who were involved, like we were all really like connected on the same page. It, yeah. So, you know, it was kind of like this thing where I didn't, I, I'm, I'm focusing on my masters and like moving forward, but I keep having these ideas and then being like, oh, I just want to try this and try that. So it's just been like fun. 
Okay. So what's the reception been like to this, right? It's, it's, it's quite an interesting program because I think you charge $100 for like four sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just quite curious. What have you learned from this? Like what has the response been? Um, how has it impacted the participants? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's $100 for five sessions. Mm-hmm. I've never charged for anything I've done before. I've been doing unpaid work for two years um, without thinking. I, I, I should have thought about it, but I didn't think. And I've done a lot of like facilitation, trauma-informed work for different like groups and you know yoga spaces, etc. And I've been doing all of it unpaid because like I literally forgot and didn't think about it. So that was my bad. But this was me putting like hard work, independent research, my services and offering it. And there was some some people who were not happy about it. And to me, my perception is I think people have a lot of fun policing brown women and what we do. I also think people don't want us to earn money. And I think it's very strange to make assumptions on people's qualifications. And so the whole thing, like, I don't like to engage in, um, I don't like to engage once I know like people are, are intending to be disrespectful to So I just completely disengaged because that was me just protecting my own like space. But um, I just always feel like, you know, like when we think about, for example, divorce and custody, we always go like, oh, the kids know like which parent really has their best interest in heart, that kind of concept. I've heard that. Um, and I feel like people can sense authenticity and intention. And so I'm not really like, it doesn't really bother me. Uh, and I think I've had, I, I think that's actually happened because when you experience trauma, you've experienced having to be so self-assured in order to survive. Cause like that's something that you do in your own healing. So I think that actually helped me manage that. And I kind of just was like, okay, this is not my business because I, I'm very, very conscious of ethics anyway. And I, I definitely like connected with like psychologists I've worked with and things to ensure that I felt like comfortable with what I was doing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, on top of that, right, you also have a bunch of other services, right? Like research consultancy, uh, hosting workshops, podcasts, things like that. Like, um, I guess the question is also, uh, why? Like, what, what do you hope to achieve with these services, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you know, you have the the self-care workshop, you've got research consultancy, you've got all these things that you're offering, right? I guess, yeah, what, what, are, you, what are you trying to achieve with these things? And also, why are you doing these things, I guess, independently rather than with an institution or a board or an NGO? Yeah. I have only worked with institutions whose ethics I can genuinely stand behind and trust. <laughs> I have not really found many that can accept or be comfortable with the amount that I talk about racism or sexism or, you know, queerness. And so um, I have worked with amazing spaces. Um, like, for example, like when I, I, I interned at the Ministry of Social and Family Development and it was a really good experience. My boss was a brown woman and I learned more than I've ever learned in the psych space. But I wrote out those services after two years of doing them. And it was just me reflecting on like, OK, what have I done? Because I would like to continue it when I was doing the work I was doing, and mostly related to racism and sexual violence, it was, it was really like this automatic process of, okay, where else can I like try and like, you know, enact some change or offer people like, that, like I said, that tool belt of supporting themselves. Because I think when you experience that sense of powerlessness, you don't want anyone else to experience that. Um, where do you see self-ally headed then? 
right? I mean, you mm-hmm. know, now that we've talked about, you know, everything that it offers, and it's got a lot of things that it's offering, right? And it's one of, I think, also one of the few pages that I think has a, has a sort of financial uh, element to it, where there are workshops, there are services that you're offering, there is a, a certain model of sustainability there, right? Where do you see Self-Ally going in the next year, the next five years, right? Do you want it to expand? Mm-hmm. Do you want it to become an NGO? What are your plans for the future with Self-Ally? So, so this workshop was, like I said, the first thing that was financial. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if I would do that again. Like, I, I definitely deserve to charge for my services, but I don't know if I have the time for that now that I'm doing master's. So I think in terms of Self-Ally, like now I'm more focused on getting licensed, like doing my master's. And then once I'm in that space, my goal is to offer therapy that is trauma-informed, is, you know, racially conscious, culturally conscious. And then also I would like to create like, you know, how to say, like, you know, tool mod, like models of of, um, frameworks and stuff like that, that I can offer people to implement into their own practice. Because like I said, like, you know, in Singapore, if the majority, is, a, is one race then the majority of therapists are also that race and as a brown person going to a Chinese person for care there needs to be some sense of like you know like information and education on culture so that's kind of my focus mm-hmm. so do you see this going on um, do you see self-ally kind of continuing uh, its work for the next couple of years is it going to expand are you going to add more workshops and programs and services mm-hmm I mean, 100%. I don't have anything in mind, but I'm constantly like thinking of what to create and put out next, so I'm sure there will be. All right. Well, I guess I now I'd like to kind of zoom out a little bit, right, and sort of pick your brains on what exactly is the situation regarding mental health in Singapore then? Yeah. The situation. I mean, we all, we all kind of know that, you know, uh, I think culturally that, you know, it's it's still kind of not fully accepted. It's not something that we are f- we are fully conscious of. Um, I think on a state and policy level as well, it's not it's not received the most support. But what exactly does the situation in Singapore look like? So we have the public healthcare system. We have the private healthcare system. The public system is obviously a lot more affordable. It's subsidized. I see a lot of people messaging me wanting private healthcare because the public system was not enough to support them or did not align with what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from my from my lens, and I have been in therapy since I was 14, I have been mentally ill for probably my whole life. So that's been my experience existing in the world. I think we have a very, unfortunately, superficial understanding of what living with a mental illness really looks like. And I think our treatment, um, it can often be a little like um, capitalist in the sense that the objective is really to put you back out there and like fix you back up and give you back to the workforce. Um, It's a lot of words like burnout and stress, when in reality, maybe we're actually talking about, you know, anxiety or depression or racially, you know, motivated trauma that's happening in the workplace and no one's talking about. Like, there's a lot of things that we don't have a lot of space for. And then people are saying, where do I find space for this? And so I have, for example, there's a a counseling center called Mental Act who their treatment is specifically for Indians. 
So they offer mental health treatment for Indian people in Singapore. And so I'm constantly recommending them because people are really looking for a space where they genuinely feel safe and don't have to explain to a therapist, like, actually, it's not cool that you said that because... And then there's a power dynamic as well, often, between, you know, when you're, when you're getting a service from a therapist, even though you're paying them, there is this power dynamic where you feel like, well, they know what they're doing. And the fact, the fact is, I think in Singapore, like... Um, I think like there's no push for them to be racially conscious. Mm-hmm. So unless they really care about it personally, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about uh, if I can sorry if yeah. I can summarize what you're saying though? It sounds very much like um, the system itself is a huge part of the problem, but there's no recognition that the system is 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 part of the problem. So. For example, the system wants to wants us to be, um, you know, productive uh, digits, as Lee Kuan Yew famously said, and mental health issues caused by that whole paradigm can't be coped with in the system because um, if they recognize that that itself was the problem, the whole thing would uh, become almost contradictory. Um, and likewise, um, if I can then take that step further, right, we are increasingly acknowledging that there is a lot of racism inherent in how Singapore is set up, but it feels like the um, mental health treatment in Singapore uh, can't cope with that either because that, again, would require a level of self-reflection that would cause the whole thing to fall apart. Is, is, is that an accurate I mean, I would, I, I would say somewhat yes. Um, you know, I firmly believe that Chinese privilege is very real in Singapore. And how do I get treatment if, you know, people in power are denouncing that? Right? There's no one really mm. motivating them to actually believe what I'm saying. And I think the most important thing about any type of mental health treatment is meet your client where they are at. And you can't meet me in my reality if you don't believe it. Yeah. And so, and I think this is part of what Sean was going to ask. Like, why is that um, so difficult for us in Singapore? You know, I think beyond the... Is, is it, it's so easy to blame the government uh, mm-hmm. and policies and no doubt there are decades of policies uh, trying to shape Singapore in a certain way that have really affected, uh, you know, as a historian I can, how people thought and wrote and acted in the 50s and 60s are, are in some ways so different from how they wrote and think, how we write and think and act today even though it's only one generation apart or two generations apart, mm-hmm. which can be directly traced to policies. But there, are, there, are there other, um, you know, apart from, and I know we all love to blame the government, but is there anything else that we need to think about here to understand this situation? Yeah, so my friend was telling me about this book um, by this Pakistani woman, Sarah Ahmed, I think, and she talks about the feminist snap. And she basically, like, describes it as like a twig and she says you know you pay attention to the twig when you hear the crack but you're not paying attention when there's that pressure and in a lot of like south asian cultures um there's when women speak out and they're like finally frustrated there's a lot of like whoa 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 like where is this coming from because 
You're only paying attention when that snap happens. You're not paying attention when that pressure is happening, the pressure of you know the sexism in the community or whatever there might be. So in line with race, um, when we are saying this Chinese privilege, things are awful, I'm experiencing racism every single day, you know, people are going, whoa, 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 because they're not engaging with our reality until they have to. Um, and I think there's, you know, when we talk about discourse and things like that, um, I think it's very superficial, again, because they don't want to get into the nitty gritty of it, because it's a lot of self-reflection and people don't want to have to self-reflect. Um, yeah, and as well, like, I mean, I don't really feel like going like, you know, like blame blame this and blame that but i think that the system is enabled by people because it benefits them it's very difficult to go against the system when you're benefiting from it you know what i mean so um like i go outside and the second i get in a cab i'm hearing chinese a language i don't understand i'm going to the movies the subtitles are in chinese only so like if i want to bring my grandparent or you know a Malay person wants to bring their grandmother and they don't speak English there's nothing um, I'm in the workplace people are speaking Chinese about work so I'm not included I'm not getting as many opportunities I'm in school Chinese men are speaking over me I'm in public and Chinese men are yelling at me in Chinese go back to where you came from and so I think you know People are very uncomfortable substituting the word white for Chinese. They don't want to go, oh, you're just taking white privilege and saying Chinese privilege. But if I can take the phrase, today a white person yelled at me to go back to my country and I can replace white with Chinese, then I think that's a conversation that you have to accept. And right now they don't want to because um, it's not comfortable. Well, I mean, now that we sort of identified some of the major problems in the country, right? What are some of the main changes that you like to see happen here? So I think, you know, it's very powerful to share stories and to actually hear the first-hand experiences. I think these are case studies. Um, and that's definitely, I, I believe a lot in qualitative research. And I think it, it needs to be given more attention and things like that. But um, I think that at the root of it, we need policy change and we need protection laws. And so... For example, if I'm reporting racial harassment in public, is there a law specific to racial harassment? Is there a way for me to make sure that, you know, even so much like that I know the person will go through a racial sensitivity training or be told next time, this is your first warning, next time this is what will happen. And I think in a lot of like disciplinary, like, you know, or punitive networks or, or frameworks, there's a lack of detail. That's just my my thing. Like I would like to know clearly like when I, what are my rights when I'm saying like oh this person yelled this at me in public. At this point I think you when you report harassment it's just harassment. It's like oh this person was harassing me. I want the option to say you know this person was racially harassing me. I consider it a hate crime. What are you going to do about it? And I think in a lot of my emails to the government my last line is also I want you to get back to me on what your plan of action is. It's always my last line because I have an expectation like if you are a civil service and you're serving the community, then that includes me. And so um, I think it's about listening. And then secondly, like actual policy change, like kids, like my, my cousins are five years old, right? And they came back from school and they were like, oh, we were told today not to be friends with the Indian girl. And I was like, why? They're like, oh, this Chinese girl said because she's dark. They're five. 
and it, it's happening constantly you know it's it's everywhere and so if we're not teaching them at that age if we're saying like oh it's not a big deal or it's casual at primary school level that girl's being ostracized and is going to have racial trauma and there's nothing being done about it and so my answer is really like we need race motivated policies yes <laughs> first of all i mean i i i think you know, I totally, I, I, I totally get what you're saying, and we, I, you know, I, I, like, for example, you know, when my son was in primary school, because he's half Filipino, uh, a teacher made a joke about him, or I, I don't even know if it was a joke, right, but about him doing the cleaning in the class, because he was half Filipino. But the thing is, I, I, you know, his parents didn't learn about this until years and years later because he himself was afraid to report it because of a desire to conform but also a desire not to get in trouble because if he said something against someone in a position of authority over him he understood the system you know it, it was more likely that he would be the one who gets in trouble so I, I have to wonder, like, also on, on top of these laws about protecting against, um, you know, and being able to say specifically, this is racial harassment, right? How do we protect people who then do these reports? And there's a similar situation, you know, your other area of expertise is, is sexual violence. Um, you know, the vast majority of, of rapes, sexual assault don't go reported. And even when they do get reported, the conviction rate is low. So it seems to me there's more to it than simply, you know, recognizing a certain category, right? How do we actually change things so that people are actually um, can acknowledge uh, the the racism? act upon it, that we have effective action, that people in power don't respond to, you know, with uh, skepticism or hostility. So th there's that whole extra dimension there, it yeah. seems to me. So it's very true that reporting is, first of all, reporting should always be a personal decision. I think especially because it very often does not work. And I have had the experience of reporting certain things and there being no action despite what I feel like is enough and so and a lot of people who contact me are reporting different things and I've seen the different outcomes and you know, for example for sexual violence it can take up to a year or more it's a lot to put in and so I do agree like on one hand reporting doesn't always work on the other hand it's a lot of like personal risk physical risk emotional risk and all of that so to me I think it's really like preventative action I think that's why I say like racial sensitivity training because I think you know, a lot of the things that we have are like after the fact, oh, after you've been assaulted, we'll, we'll give you this, or we'll give you that. Mm. Preventative action is stuff like bystander intervention, where it's like, what, these are the identifying factors. When you notice this, you have the right as a bystander to go, hey, are you okay? And I think like I've been doing research recently on the, the efficacy of bystander intervention at universities. And it has been found that, you know, for example, with rape myths, which are like, you know, victim blaming and, and like, oh, was she drinking and these kind of things, that after this, this training, 
most um, of the, the male participants actually completely changed their minds in a lot of the studies. And so, like, like I think what you're saying is, the thing is with a lot of minorities, we do have to conform to survive. Even this, the speaking of Singlish is a conformity for many people. I was at dinner with like six Indian people the other day and they were all like, oh yeah, actually like my whole family doesn't really speak it. We only use it when we're around Chinese people so they understand us. It's not our, it's, it's not everyone's language or, or slang, but we, and, and I am one of the only people in my family who can't do it. I've tried and it, I'm not good at it, but I have uncles and aunts who can code switch like that. And it's, it, growing up watching it was such a strange experience. And so I think it's, it's just like that sense of, of education, but then that preventative action. So that doesn't get to the point where, you know, we're just doing after the fact like stuff. So again, we come back though to, to this bigger problem, right? We talk about preventive action. Um, and if you're a private sector organization or a person, yes. But on a societal level, especially mm -hmm. in a place like Singapore, is there any way to get past the fact that we, we have a government that intervenes in our lives at such an intimate level, right? You know, it determines where we live and who we marry and how many children we have. Mm. And so is, is the only way then really either a political change, either changing the minds of the people in power or changing the people in power, right? Because is that, is that the only way? Anything else, it seems almost uh, prophylactic, right? You're just, it's just dealing with symptoms. But we have a society that is so fundamentally powerfully shaped by this PAP government that if we don't change their minds or change them, mm -hmm. then, then it's just, uh, you know, shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic sort of situation. Or, you know, or is, there, yeah. is there something else you think that we can do? This is my personal opinion. <laughs> yeah. You don't wait for a parasite to get better. So if something is parasitic in nature, you do need to uproot, you know what I mean? And so my, my belief is that in the current system and regime we have, there is no room for freedom for me and for many people who are women, who are brown, who are all these different intersections, there's no room for freedom for us. Um, and so, you know, I, I had a conversation, for example, about 377A where I was trying to explain, I know, um, you know, gay rape victims who did not report simply because they have had experiences or heard of people being told, oh, like, if you report this, like, we're going to use 377A against you. And so they literally cannot have their the same equal rights as other victims, right? And so when we're saying, like, oh, like, we support all victims, do you really? And what's holding them back? And when I had a conversation with someone involved in this, um, what I was told is, oh, well, it's not really an action, so they're safe. And I said, have you told your police officers that? Like, do they know that? Are, are you sure they're not using it? And there was no no comprehension of, like, the amount of work that goes into it, which is why I say, you know, in the current system we have, nothing can really happen because, like I said, the reality, I call it the Chinese-Singaporean bubble. I say this all the time. I feel like we live in, like, this little snow globe um, and there's nothing we can do about it because from, you know, language to housing to daily treatment, there's just a real difference in equity that has not just, you know, it's not just there, but it's sustained almost. Yeah. 
So coming back to early, earlier metaphor about the snap, is that why we're seeing all this in Singapore now? Because mm -hmm. um, as we were recording this on the 3rd of July 2021, and it feels like in the last month there has been so much bad news coming out of Singapore, especially in terms of racist uh, behavior, attacks, you know, uh, is this, is, are we at some sort of, combined with the pandemic and everything else going on, is this, would you say this is a, a snapping point? I think that, that there have been several snapping points and they've all been ignored. Like when the brown face incident happened, when, mm. when and for a lot of us, when, when Raisa was in trouble and other people yeah. weren't in trouble, there's so many things that happened where we're like, what? And we're all like yelling and it's just like, we're ignored. Um, yeah. And so I think this does feel bigger. It does. A lot of what I'm hearing from people is just like pure exhaustion. Like I'm con I've been connecting a lot more with like, you know, fellow people who are brown activists in the space. Like, um, and I think it's just this sense of like, oh, like it's not only that they don't want to hear us. It's that even when they do, they would rather turn the other way, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to kind of ask you a question on that note, right? You know? Which is, I think a lot of, I, I, I have a lot of friends, you know, from college and from work and all that. And, you know, some of them are minorities, some of them are brown people. Um, I sometimes find it hard to justify to them to get involved, to be informed, to, to, to you know, do work in social justice, right? Because really, in telling them to get into activism, I'm really saying, please expose yourself to more violence. Um, so please expose yourself to more mental health issues. So how do I kind of, maybe I'm asking you for myself even, right? Like how do I kind of um, justify that? How do I negotiate that space between the sort of righteous anger that one has when coming up against the system, as well as taking space out for yourself, making sure that your mental health is okay? Um, how do I negotiate that? Yeah. So I think that's a really, I, I like that you said righteous anger, because I've been reading more about that. I think our anger is like so, you know, people don't enjoy brown anger and often we're stereotyped for it, but it's very much righteous. Um, I think for me, like I found there's great power in knowing when to take pause. And a lot of people I've been speaking to and I have been realizing that we do not know when to stop because it's, there's so many emotions that it's sometimes you're kind of barreling past your own boundaries because you're like no like you know and I know what that feels like and I think I think it's 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 like a it's like a practice of of you know practicing in moderation which sounds weird because it's about our rights but you know it's a lot of expended energy and a lot of these conversations um they're conversations with people who are completely unaffected about something that literally only affects us that's a very painful experience. We're experiencing pain by talking about pain, right? So, um, therapy is helpful. Okay. <laughs> but, you do but, have sort of like a, a toolbox or, or advice on that issue, right? Because I'm thinking about like my personal experience when uh, the Dave Prakash case broke, right? The, the guy that got yelled at in the middle of Orchard Road for no reason, right? Um, when that case broke, right? I think activists in Singapore were sort of covering that story uh, producing think pieces, right? And then it continued to break a week after that, right? The, uh, the police got involved. 
the polytechnic got involved, right? And then after that, a whole bunch of racist uh, stories started coming out as well, right? Um, uh, people started sharing more of their experiences, linking it to Prakasha's case. So the story never stopped breaking, I think for two to three weeks, right? And I think I felt for myself as at a certain point, burnout. But it, and I never caught myself being like, I need to step away from this because how do you step away from looking at a train wreck? You know, that, that stuff sucks you in, right? And there's that anger and it snowballs. So do you have sort of advice or a toolbox or a set of resources maybe that mm-hmm. could, could, you know, shed some light on when do we take pauses? When do we take breaks? How do we kind of manage it? Because it's really a, addictive I don't want to use that word but addictive you know when the anger is going when the frustration is going and you feel I need to do this you know the story is breaking it's fresh right but it's always fresh this goddamn systemic racism is never ending right Mm -hmm. so 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 do you have do you have any sort of tools or advice for that yeah you know I was saying earlier about how trauma is a very embodied experience like trauma recovery I think that when we start to view racism as trauma, that's where we can really take care of ourselves because um, microaggressions, like I think the understanding of it is quite like, you know, minimal at this point, but going every single day being treated by something that you're not and and going every single day being viewed as brown before being viewed as a person is is very painful. And so I have a post that's like way back. Actually, that's so sad because I posted that when like a year ago when the brown face thing happened. But I talked about minority mental health. And some of the things I talked about was how it's important to one, like reconnect to your community. So like holding space for feelings, not just internal. Also, we're like, it's a pandemic. We're all alone by ourselves, like being upset. It's been very helpful for me to like have Zoom calls and like talk to people and be like, yeah, this sucks. Um, And then also being more mindful about like engaging in in safety in spaces and by that i mean racial safety so what does racial safety look like if you're at the workplace i've heard too many stories of people just accepting things because it's normalized um and so i think it's like a lot of work and i've experienced like the exhaustion of it in like mental health and in terms of racism like you know survivorship everything but it's really like a practice of like self-care actually and that cannot be stopped like you have to be doing it consistently um and i think like i said with checking in with your body that tells you when to take pause like for me like when i'm reading like things about racism i can feel sometimes in my body me getting like my chest tightening or you know my breath gets shot like i literally have reactions to it but we don't always pay attention because we're disconnected right because a lot of stuff is going on here so i think like handling being a racial like an activist regarding race is really like going through a process of like therapy as well you have to have that yeah so yeah so i'm gonna just shoot you the final question that we shoot to all of our guests here right a bit of a philosophical bit of an abstract question but what is your theory of change yeah uh what do you think changes how do you think it should happen and how do you think it it will happen Or, or what are things that we can do to make it happen however you want to interpret the question but what is your theory of change i think for myself um i think my theory of change for marginalized folk is demanding joy i've been thinking a lot about this that when you live in a society that is unfair to you that there needs to be a lot of space for for experiencing joy looking for joy offering joy and demanding joy in your life um and so 
I think you know that there's this quote by that that she was like a, a black anthropologist who like my mom had bought me a lot of books by her when I was a kid for some reason um, and she had that line which is like if you're silent about your pain they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it and I think that that talking about your joy is a way of not being silent as well being like you know I still get to have joy it's still something that is a right of mine hmm. yeah maybe can you elaborate on that a little bit like what would that look like? And I think as, mm-hmm. especially also with, with our social media news cycle, especially for media news cycle, right? Pain sells, right? Suffering, trauma, train crashes. Um, they, they, they get the clicks, they get the views, right? What does talking about joy mean? What does it look like? I can't remember mm-hmm. the last time I saw a meaningfully good story on Instagram. But yeah, what does it look like? I've been seeing a lot of posts um, where people are captioning it brown joy and showing images of like them in, in engaging and enjoying their culture, their family and in who they are. And I think for me, like uh, I posted recently talking about how I'm frustrated about racism, but in the post aligned with those words, I had images of like Pakistan and Iran. And I think for me personally, it's very important to to remind myself that I exist beyond this reality as much as it would like to like have its hold on me and as much as we live it every day it's important to remember like you know our ancestry goes beyond this our family goes beyond this our culture goes beyond this and it can be very painful to live in a system that is smaller than who we are and I think that's the reality but believing that and realizing like I am bigger than this is what keeps me like kind of feeling sane if that makes sense Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I think uh, that's all the questions we have, Alicia. Thank you very much for joining us, Alicia, and uh, for all your insights. And as always, thanks to my co host, Sean. Yeah, thanks uh, for having Great me. questions, yeah. always, as always. <laughs> and thanks to all of you, our listeners, for joining us today on Political Agenda. As always, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you find it useful, please do join New Narrative as a member. We are an entirely member-supported movement for democracy in Southeast Asia, and we need your support to be sustainable and continue to be independent. So please do join at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Thank you very much and see you next time.